people's expectations is another big part of this, is that here are the ideas that are currently fashionable, here are the things that other people are talking about, here are the things that I know will get esteem from colleagues. And some of the angles that I've taken in these books are not those. And so I need to be in the forest, I need to be experiencing other forms of art in order to get to those places and to say, hey, it's okay. If I want to sit and watch a pile of dead leaves for a year and write a book about it, which is a peculiar notion, then that's all right. Let's just do that and see where it goes. But in going down that path, I had to say no to a lot of other things. I mean, each book took years of work to, to come up with, and those years were years not spent doing, say, more standard scientific experimentation or getting grants to do some other project and so forth, which would be more standard along the career path that, that I'm on. And so I have uh, needed to be around other people's ideas to say, it's all right to do that, uh, even if it winds up being an utter failure. And my the way I assess that is after a few months into a project, if I feel like I'm glad I did this, even if it never sees the light of day, because I learned so much from it, then I know that this is, other people are probably going to be interested in that. And if they're not, it's okay, because I'm, I'm feeling like that. If I'm still anxious and tied up in a ball of, ooh, is this good enough? And what, what are other people going to say about this? What are, what are the reviews going to be? You know, that's always in the back of the mind. But if those are dominant voices, I know I'm, I need to be on a different path. Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And this is the bonus episode for Dr. David Haskell. That's right. And if you haven't listened to the episode of Dr. David Haskell, that's episode six, make sure to go back and listen to that. Because this won't make as much sense. Right. So I would go back and do that right now. Stop what you're doing. Stop this podcast. Stop driving. Stop driving. Stop, Stop breathing. <laughs> Stop breathing. Go back and listen to it right now. We'll wait. Okay. No, that there. That wasn't a very long wait. Now, what well, they've caught up. I think they know how to use the. I think they know how to use the play and pause button. Okay. In this episode, I'd like to turn away from Dr. David Haskell, the scientist, and concentrate on Dr. David Haskell, the artist, the writer. Ah, interesting. And all art, I think, starts with the seed of an idea, mm-hmm. something to get started. Yeah. And for David, it was birds. But listening to trees came partly through listening to birds. And I studied bird physics for many years and taught courses on birds and bird song. And I invited students into these listening exercises to just open up to the soundscape. And of course that helps you learn and remember bird sounds. But you do that and you realize, oh my goodness, the city or this, the countryside has all kinds of other amazing sounds in addition to the birds, including the sounds of the trees. Uh, most trees in most other places where the background noise is a little lower, you can hear the characteristic sound of the tree. A pine tree sounds really different from a maple tree. The ponderosa pine trees in California sound different than the ones in, in uh, Colorado because their needles are diff- different shapes, different floppiness. So each, each tree, each tree species has its own sound. 
hearing these kinds of subtleties requires an inner stillness of sorts that most people, especially city folk who demand instant gratification for everything, cannot handle. This idea of just sitting there, silent, and without expectation for long periods of time. (laughs) That's the big thing, expectation. Yeah, so what I'm doing here is is sort of a a tree meditation, just going, because the discipline is just pick a tree and then return again and again, whether or not you feel like it, whether or not you think the story is over, you've discovered all you can, or just keep showing up without any expectation of trying to pay attention. That's my ideal, of course, I come with all sorts of expectations and (laughs) and so so on, Um, but in returning again and again, dozens, sometimes hundreds of times, I can break through some of those and learn new things. At least, I think I can do that. And yes, that came from some experience of, of a more you know, traditional kind of meditation where you just sit in silence and watch your breath. And that predated and inspired the, the forest unseen as well, where I watched one square meter of forest, uh, sort of forest, forest ecology meditation, if you like. So the practice is the same. It's about return return to the breath, return the mantra, return to the center, right? Do you yeah. meditate? Yeah, ritual. Do you meditate? I do, but not nearly enough. Yeah, me too. Same yeah. problem. It's, yeah. the, it's, it's the committing yourself to the time, which is still the hard part. But when I do, I mean, I feel the difference. Yeah. I do. I really do. Because you get frustrated meditating, right? You're like, I'm not doing it right. My, my mind is wandering. You can't control that. It's going to wander. Anyway, the critical part is the return mm-hmm. is like catching yourself and you when you realize oh I'm way out there I'm, I'm thinking about groceries I'm thinking about my taxes right you know and then but not getting mad at yourself and going oh shanti 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 you know <laughs> right. pulling yourself back and jerking yourself around yeah it's, it's like be gentle with yourself and like oh wait no 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 I'm lost I'm going back going back to that center again but he's physically doing it he's yeah physically returning to a place in a tree in Tennessee, a, a tree in Japan, a tree in South America. You know, mm. these are physical places he's returning to again and again and again and sitting and observing. Many artists have a practice of returning again and again, painting the same mountain again and again, play the same piece of music again and again. Darwin had his sand walk, he would walk the same patch of ground and again and again. So, this practice of repeated attention to a place. I think spans many different disciplines. I've just applied it in in one particular way through these books. I wasn't presumed to uh, to have any particular corner on that. I'm doing picking up what people have been doing for thousands and thousands of years to try to gain insight into a place. The way these books emerge was first spending a lot of time in the forest or with particular trees and trying to have a you know, rather open-ended sense of attention to what's happening there. I had particular questions and things that, that I'm, I'm interested in, in pursuing there, but I don't want those to blind me or to c- close my ears to other stories that are happening that may be more interesting and more important. And that is a skill that I just developed by showing up again and again over hundreds of times and doing this. When I'm walking in the forest, I'm not looking for any particular um, answer and that's in fact 
one of the things I had to learn as I started this process is to let some of those preconceptions go that here I was going to learn about evolution or today I'm going to be studying ecology and, and rather just show up and try to pay attention to what's happening there on a particular day. And the surprise to me are the things that I am not expecting that then leap out at me, uh, say the uh, extent to which the amount of uh, bark cover is affecting the rate of decomposition of the wood and how that affects the diversity of fungi within within the tree and then well what does that mean for different trees that have different shapes of bark how does that affect fungal diversity so you go from a from a rather simple physical phenomenon different trees have different shaped bark to a phenomenon of biodiversity how, how is it that we have so many species crammed together all in one place in the forest? So that, that's one of the things I noted today was just the, the, how the number of fungi really seem to be correlated to the physical space. Then the writing process is not at all like that. You know, I'll go to the library and read up, say, if I'm writing about trees in, in the city in New York or olive trees in Jerusalem or a rotting log here in, in Tennessee and read what is in the scientific literature or the anthropological literature or, or the news, in particularly in, in the Middle East. How are people interacting with these trees? What have people found about, um, about their lives? So really digging into what other people have written and then just gathering all of that and then sitting down facing a blank wall and saying, okay, this needs to come out in a way that combines ideas that is accessible to other people. It's not just a stream of consciousness, whatever I happen to observe in the, in the forest, which is interesting to me, but completely inaccessible to other people and unwelcoming to other people. The craft of writing an essay is saying, you know, here are the five ideas that need to be put together. And I think maybe three of them have never been put together before, to my knowledge. How can I bring them together in a way that's an interesting braid that leads us to an interesting endpoint here? And the endpoint isn't an answer, but is a way of looking at this particular uh, this particular phenomenon. And and that I do, I mean, literally, usually facing a blank wall with a sheet of paper and just working with those ideas, drawing and hoping that something in my experience, both in the library and in the forest, will come through and um, create some sparks of ideas that then can feed on the observations. So if I hadn't been paying attention in the woods, there is nothing there worth reading, right? You have to know how it smelled or what the quality of the light was. That's, that's the direct experience. And then from that, we can go into the layers of ideas. What David just said reminds me of what Jonathan Meinberg said a few episodes ago. One thing that I think it's really important for, for artists of any kind to do, anybody who's doing any sort of creative project, um, is to stay susceptible uh, to stay impressionable and but if you are a susceptible impressionable person if if things really affect you then it's very easy for you it's like not having an immune system almost it's very easy for you to get infected by all kinds of things and so you have to be pretty careful about what you feed yourself and david has a similar you know way of, of saying kind of the same thing about how networks have to have uh, be kind of open and closed, keeping that balance of open and closed correct? You can't exist at either extreme. If you're completely walled off, you're dead. If you're completely open, you're overrun and will shortly be dead. So life has figured this out. Every species has its own strategy of dealing with that. 
being alive means you are a networked being, which means you are a hub of sorts for competing ideas and influences. What do you let in? And what do you keep out? From the standpoint of creativity, that means staying open to things which may seem at least unhelpful, and at worst, harmful. And determining which is which is usually based upon preconception. And when he talked about the dangers of um, preconception, you know, you're talking to an actor. And um, the most insidious habit to get into as an actor is anticipation. And it, I mean, it's, 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 it's true for everything. I mean, it's true in scientific circles, you know, there, there, there are entire, um, schools of social psychology that are occasionally shot down because it's found that, that experimentation has been littered with expectation and looking for a result. Um, you can see this play out in, in a variety of different fields. Well, that, that gets us back to kind of a Buddhist sort of eastern way of looking at things right that expectation is also the source of all misery as soon as you, when you just want something to happen that's a, that's an expectation and then it doesn't happen mm-hmm. and now you're sad and pissed off well i think that might be a part of the reason you know why we as humans are driven to perform rituals you hmm. know um i mean brushing our teeth is a ritual you know uh the very like actually i'm rehearsing a play right now doing a play itself is a ritual Oh, yeah. Um, Church service is a ritual. These are ways that we have of returning ourselves to a baseline by going ahead and getting expectation out of the way and repeating these things so that we are more attuned to what the difference is. What is happening now that wasn't happening the last time we did this ritual? Human minds have been connected with the help of trees for a long time. Paper is one way, and we live in a culture where paper is almost invisible, right? We're concerned about what's inked on its surface, but the paper itself is just a a substrate, and we we almost don't even feel it or see it. But when you pay attention to it, it's sending a message. It comes from a place. The quality of the paper, you know, when you send out, send an invitation to a really important event, that's when we notice the paper. But mostly, we don't. And yet the paper itself has a story. Even the snap and the crinkle of the paper will tell you where it's coming from. The people who make banknotes, who make the US banknotes, can tell a forgery first by listening to the snap of the note. And then they do the chemical analysis to confirm what they already knew from their ears. You know, as a writer, I think it's an important thing to remember that we're not, again, dealing just with abstractions, that this notebook in my hand is made from a comes from a real place, has a story, each page has a story that I write on it, and then it has a story that's behind that, is how did that page get into my hands here? And this particular notebook probably came from a forest somewhere up in, in Canada, from a, from a paper mill there. And so the sound of this paper is the sound of the boreal forest. One particular phrase really struck with me from my visits to Japan, and those are the carpenters who said that when you use a tree, you're giving a tree its second life, and that second life should be as long and as beautiful as the first. So if you cut down a thousand-year-old redwood tree, you better be building something that is going to last a thousand years, and it's going to be just as amazing as that redwood tree, or you should be attempting that. 
And if it's a tree, you know, a sapling that's just two years old, your, your moral obligation is, is a little less. And I don't think that's a, a rule that you have to follow to the latter, but it's an interesting way of thinking about human uh, craftsmanship and artistry, that it isn't just destroying the tree. No, it's, it's working with a tree to create something beautiful and useful, but it doesn't come without some moral obligation to not destroy ancient beautiful things to make things that are very ephemeral and that won't last very long. And so the same is true with books. You know, if, we're, if we're cutting down 30-year-old forests to make books, we should be binding the book and, and, and printing the book with things that are worthy to last at least that long. And that's, that's a way of thinking that I hadn't really encountered before uh, here, but it's really changed how I've interacted with paper and with wood products and, and just getting a little deeper into the, into the philosophical relationship between people and trees. As an artist, that's intimidating. As a carpenter, that's intimidating. That's why for me, as an amateur carpenter, I only work with pine. <laughs> the, the, it's true, man. The more expensive hardwoods are too good for me. And right. I'm afraid one is going to kick back on my table saw because pine is soft. It doesn't kick back the way hardwoods do. So pine is soft and cheap and it would never hurt me. <laughs> but yeah. how about you? Have you ever written anything worth the paper it's printed on? <laughs> Probably not. Back in Swanee, you put that question to David. How do you know what you're writing is worth the effort and what is your technique? So I don't know what is happening there. You know, I sit down and, and my guide in this always is I want the sentence that I write to be true to either the experience in the forest. So if I'm tr describing, say, the smell of, of some leaf litter, you know, I'll run through all sorts of different verbs or analogies, other kind of metaphors, and find the one that actually seems to ring true to my experience there. And usually it's edging on, on absurdity. Um, and that's good because it, it actually puts us, puts me a little off guard and says, okay, that's, that's an interesting way of putting this, but people are going to think that's a little weird. Uh, but I really want to convey what it is to hear the wood thrush or what it is to smell the smell of leaf litter that has more oak in it than, than, than pine. You know, those are very different smelling, uh, those are different, different phenomena. So again and again, when I'm writing, I'm going inside and trying to find, here's my experience, here are the words, what actually works, what feels truthful. And the same is true for ideas. Here's an idea, and here's why it's interesting. How am I going to convey that in a way that I think makes that idea really clear and conveys why it's important through the language? And so in both of those cases, I don't really have any technique other than sitting down and trying to find that truth. Often it is through use of metaphor and verbs, of course. I mean, this is very elementary uh, sort of writing advice, but honing in on the verbs and using them so that they're accurate and truthful is is a difficult task. Sometimes yeah. it is. That's another thing I was going to ask you. Uh, in, deal, in, in a book that deals so much with language and sound, you have a, a tremendous amount of ontomatopoeia in this book, and mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about the difficulty or the joy in trying to convey sound in the written word. Yeah, that's okay. So it's, it's difficult, but it's also fun. I mean, 
that is, there is hard parts of writing, editing things and trying to get the ideas clear and so forth. But actually conveying things through language in a way that's playful, that's light, uh, that isn't you know, really preachy. It's just, here was my experience and here are some words that, that transmit my experience, which is locked up in my consciousness for the moment through this written word into your head where your consciousness will interpret it and then be able to experience it. That's what writing is about, and that's what many other art forms are about, connecting the human network of consciousness. And one of our great inventions is the written word, music, other ways of connecting what emerges from a network of relationships and then isolates itself into our, into our minds, but then those minds then reconnect out through culture. So culture is in some ways... And using a medium that is made out of a tree. Exactly. And trees <laughs> appear again and again. So when you listen to musical instrument, it's trees connecting points of human consciousness. When you read a page, unless you're reading on an, you know, an e-reader, although that e-reader does have some rare elements in it that came from a forest a long time ago, uh, that page is, is connecting us. And even when we sit around the campfire, and this is probably where human... Uh, culture first emerged was around campfires when we were the human species was still all located in Africa rather than in Africa and a number of other continents as we are now we learned how to make fire how to burn wood and then when we're around a campfire our blood pressure drops and the conversation turns to the realm of the imagination I think I mentioned a little bit of that when we met in in New York so wood was the was the kindling of, of human culture so again and again it's not universally true but Trees are present right there at those points of connection. And we recognize that in our religious symbols, right? Trees are right at the center of Buddha's enlightenment, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Again and again in the Norse legends, trees are at the center. Not because the human species is completely centered around trees. You can see how when David's chasing a thought, it leads just all over the place, right? As a writer, how do you decide, like, which trails to not follow? Because you can just keep running around forever and you end up just frantically just bouncing all over the walls. Yeah, I think you have to. I, I think you have to go down a lot of different trails. And and with experience, you start to learn which ones will yield fruit, which ones won't. You know, Jonathan Myberg in, in our episode with him, talked a lot about um, the malleability of time. Oh, Yeah. I mean, gosh, the, the book that I'm working on right now, it, it, things happen in it that happened 65 million years ago, and things oh. happen that happened in... Um, uh, you know, writing is in some ways, and the, the more I learn about it, and I have a lot to learn still, um, the more I learn that the, the, your decision of what you choose to focus on in writing, once you have just the craft of being able to write sentences, and still working on that too, but that then you know the really big decisions in writing are like, okay, well, what do you what do you write about? Um, do you do you focus on very tiny? When do you focus on a very tiny moment? When do you, you know, when do you elide over ten million years? When do you, you know, what? Mm-hmm. You can't just describe every single damn thing that happens. And like you said, free range. Yeah. And yeah, that's and, in, that, and that can, that's overwhelming. Trying to tune that faculty, you know, try and understand what makes that work. I mean, that's a, I'm going to be engaged in that project for till I'm dead. The wielding of that that power is um, one of the big knobs at your disposal when you're writing. Um, 
and it's a lot of experimentation. Um, I, I, I tend to write way too much and then pare down, you know, the, um, the, I find the first drafts to be a joyful, uh, experience and I find second drafts to be an enormously painful, strange, uh, 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 self-questioning, self-doubting <laughs> experience. Stephen King said, uh, write with the door closed and edit with the door open. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because mm. you, you really can't have someone, the lonely part of writing is um, no one can actually be with you on that path while you're doing it. Yeah. You know, it is just you and the page. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, it can be a little daunting. Um, I find that the, the structure of whatever you're working on uh, as a writer, and also I find this as an actor, you almost have to rediscover your process with each work that you do. And you're not going to discover that until you lay it all out there and then you look at what pieces do you need to build your structure. Um, and that just means hours with your butt in the chair mm-hmm. or your feet on the stage. <laughs> well, it's funny as you say butt in the chair because when I asked David about uh, how he gets unstuck when he's, you know, uh, at, when he's facing the blank page and you, and you said, you know, stick your butt in the chair and wait, David said he has to get up and move. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I have to get up and move. I mean, moving my body. I mean, so the, the body and the mind, of course, are connected and they're part of one thing. And so sitting down for hours on end uh, trying to come up with good words or good ideas is impossible unless you're also moving and so I'll write I'll get up I'll, I'll move and usually when I'm writing I'll sort of be writing all morning and then um, we'll uh, take a break and do other things that are not so mentally demanding in the afternoon but I when I get stuck movement is the thing and particularly say t- taking a walk around the block or out in the woods if I'm somewhere with some trees nearby will get my curiosity going about what's happening there and also there's something about the human nervous system being embodied and being in motion that frees up the mind partly by distracting it from from its intense focus so that it can't even see where it's going it's so focused and also i think partly because those ideas are located in 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 parts of the mind and the nervous system that that aren't uh, accessible just by sitting in one spot and trying to get there with a mind alone, working alone, as if it was floating in a jar, uh, you know, out in in some mad scientist's um, uh, laboratory. You know, another thing of just being with people, going to hear other people's talks, uh, seeing interesting plays, reading interesting books. You know, all these are things that stimulate ideas, and that they do that for for all of us. I often go to a museum and I'll be seeing a, a, say a gallery show about one particular topic and come out with ideas about things that are completely unrelated to the subject matter but somehow people connected things the curators or the artists in that show that then will stimulate ideas about my own work and so I think and that's part of of course the network of human culture is that we're all feeding off of each other we're all plagiarists if you like of each other's ideas and that's fine. That's cool. That's great. We're all riffing on the various notions that are around, that are around it at our particular time. The other thing I'll do, I mean, I do play some music on piano and, and guitar, and that helps. You know, it's another way of involving the body in the world uh, that 
is helpful to me, I think, as a writer. Yeah, I, you're one of those people, Brandon. You, you need your guitar around, I've noticed. And, and the number of times I've worked with you at the editing bay, you know, when we're trying to figure something out, you pick up that guitar and your hands are doing one thing, but I see something else going on in mm. your head. Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm, I don't know. I mean, it's definitely a um, just a reflex. I, I know that I need a distraction, and when I'm stuck, I, my body needs to be doing something else. And, and you know, and an instrument is in large part muscle memory, mm-hmm. and it's a way of creating space in your brain because now I'm pulling attention away from the thing that I've been kind of grinding away on, just kind of beating my head on the wall against it. Mm-hmm this opens up space and opens up possibility in my head because now my brain is kind of been bifurcated and now has to kind of bounce back and forth between two things and it's that swing that dynamic movement between uh, the thought that i'm trying to hold in my head and the tune that i am improvising with my hands it's the space between those two things where there's potential. But again, that's all um, a reflex. Like I, I don't think to, to me, I just do it. And by the way, I just remembered I was supposed to tell Sharon to bring over that guitar for Dara, which is actually a guitar for me because if it stays here, that means that I have a guitar to play with. And I'm over here writing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I already have plans. So it's not plan generous things. at no, all. Uh, uh, no, don't tell, tell Dara. It's for her. It is. It is for her. It's true. It's yeah. also for me. Uh, I'm planting guitars wherever I go, hiding them, you know, like other people like hide a bottle of whiskey in the hall of a tree or something. I'm like hiding guitars around. It, to me, actually, it's a bit of a nervous habit. I get a little, um, I get a little nervous if I can't pick up a guitar. They're kind of like security blankets, since we have them all over the apartment. I just, I just get, I get scared and I just grab a guitar, <laughs> hold it, <laughs> and I feel better. <laughs> you strum it and it hums and it vibrates and it's like a cat purring, you know all this. Like, you can, you can. I mean, don't get me started on all the things you can compare a guitar to. That's like uh, somebody should write a book, uh, ten thousand metaphors for a guitar. Well, one thing it is is it's it's a piece of a tree. It's a piece of a tree. Well is recorded, produced, and edited by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens. Our deepest gratitude goes to Dr. David Haskell for his time, and also for the use of his field recording of Sabo Trees. Theme music written by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music by John Watts and Brandon Edgens. You can find more info about them at our website, thewellpod.com. And if you really like the show, can really help us out by giving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Have a great week. Errata. Corrections from the last episode. I would like to apologize for my use of Latin 
I'm constantly getting the plural and the singular of things mixed up. It's bacteria, bacterium. I went back and forth over and over on that. Also, I accidentally suggested that plant cells do not contain mitochondria. Of course they do. Also, nucleated cells appear closer to 2 billion years ago, maybe even 2.5 billion years ago, not 4 billion years ago, as I suggested. Sorry about that. I am so stupid, 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 stupid.